Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, how are you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on. We're going to have a nice old chat. Who's it with this week? I'm going to tell you right now. How the devil are you? First off, apologies two apologies actually one i've just put a very delicate cycle of washing on in the apartment that i'm in in brighton so if there's a a background of uh of low rotation drum swirls then i'm really sorry and also as you can hear the church bells have been going for about 45 minutes at the moment when i've been trying to record this intro so we're just going to bear with all these uh slight annoyances um yeah how are you you could. Are you having um, sonic problems as I am? I hope not. I hope you're having no problems. I hope you're having a fantastic week. Um, my second apology, again, is to you. Uh, sorry for no new episode last week. Uh, for those that aren't on social media, I did make an apology and let you know. Um, I was just... Uh, kind of up to my neck filming. I'm here in glorious Brighton by the seaside, uh, currently uh, doing a few weeks in uh, a CID office uh, with a lot of police speak. And it's quite difficult, um, but we're, we're getting there and having fun. But it was, uh, it was just too hard to uh, get a guess. My God, these church bells. Um... But we're back this week, and I was lucky enough. So a few weeks ago, my friend Alex, who uh, works at Channel 4, uh, asked me to watch a uh, a new one-off TV film that uh, Mark Munden uh, has directed. Mark Munden is my guest, by the way. Um, with Jodie Comer, starring Jodie Comer and Stephen Graham, written by Jack Thorne, and I watched it. I was broken and devastated, and I watched it again, and uh, I saw beauty in the devastation. Uh, It's a harrowing watch, um, but it's an important watch. And then it got me thinking uh, about Mark and about his past work, which... Look, Mark's won 
He's won three BAFTAs. He's been nominated seven times for a BAFTA. He's won all sorts of awards. He's he's just a fantastic director who all the people I know, all my very, very close friends who have worked with him uh, have said, oh, yeah, no, you'll get on, you'll have a good chat and it'll be fantastic. So I was thrilled that he said yes. And as ever with everybody uh, that I invite to come on, I let them know kind of how, you know, the format is, that we don't necessarily talk about work that much. Sometimes we might go personal if they're okay with that. And, you know, it's not for everybody. And it was for Mark, and I was thrilled. We'd met uh, ever so briefly years ago uh, socially, but we haven't worked together. So it's always... It's always a gamble, so I kind of rolled the dice and went with it. And I was saying to Griff before, yeah, I was a little bit nervous when you start, but you just don't know how people are going to react when you, you hit record and you, you start going, you know, all over the shop. Um, but look, you're going to know Mark. Uh, his work in Utopia was groundbreaking. Uh, National Treasure... The third day, which we talk about. Now, if you didn't see the third day, uh, big shout out to Shaheen Baig casting, who did such an exceptional job uh, on that. Um, we talk about Jude Law's performance in that and help. Obviously, we touch on that, but we do start right back um, to a documentary that. Mark shot in 1990, 1991. And then we sort of start connecting themes and links that seem to crop up in Mark's work. Um, we talk about uh, the trust he has with actors, certain processes that he goes through, his inspirations, who he worked with, you know, when he was just starting out, and I'm talking about Derek Jarman, Terence Davies, I'm talking about Mike Lee, incredible, incredible auteurs um, of the, the you know the film business, um, and also something we didn't talk about. I mean, we didn't get into it. I think we mentioned it very very briefly. There's a film that was shot or certainly aired in 2007 called The Mark of Cain. It's with Gerard Kearns, Matthew McNulty, uh, directed by Mark. And it's uh, still a stunning, a stunning piece of work. And I, I, I spoke to Channel 4 to see if it was on their catch-up service and it didn't seem to be. So I'm hoping that's going to be on. But if you can catch it, then do do. But I think it's really important that you do look up Bermondsey Boy uh, a, it'll be under like a TV series documentary, Bermondsey Boy, Mark Munden on YouTube. Maybe you could watch that, because we do talk about that quite a bit. Um, so it'd be quite good for you to get some sort of frame of reference with that. But if you, you don't and you can't, or you don't want to, you don't have time, then that's totally fine. This is a, a, a fantastic episode. So, um, yeah, I'm really, really thrilled that Mark's come on and... I think I'm right in saying, after all these years, Mark Munden is our first film director that has come on. Um, which is, yeah, we need to have more, don't we? 
and we're gonna don't worry i've just booked another one today and it's very very exciting um so uh let's get the church bells and the delicate cycle of my washing machine out of your ears and let's get into it this is the two shot podcast with the quite brilliant to be honest mark munden enjoy and i'll see you at the end Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Can you can you hit can you hear me? By the way, is yeah, it's a good I've got, quality. I've got you loud and clear. Okay, How's cool, mine? Cool. I've just got to, yeah, yeah. I've just got back to Brighton. I um I had two days off and I hadn't seen my son for a week, so uh, I did four hundred and sixteen mile in forty eight hours. Oh, <laughs> but it's got to be done. It's got <laughs> to be done. Yeah, and I was with him, and uh, last night we um. We were in a hotel last night. He said, I've got to show you uh, I've got to show you what I've been working on. I said, all right, show me, show me, show me. How old is he, by the way? He's, he's 10. He's right, 10 right, years right, old. Right, right. And he loves film. He loves movies. And, um, and we didn't have a TV for years because I said, unless you want to watch like a big film, we'll go to the, we'll go to the pictures to watch it because that's the way to watch films. And then there was one time we were travelling somewhere and he started watching a Jurassic Park film on the iPad, and I went, I'm going to have to get you a big old telly because that's the way to, <laughs> to watch your films. And anyway, he was, he was telling me last night, he got his phone out. He said, so what I've done, and he makes trailers for, for films that he would want to work on and want to... Oh, right, cool. And I, he sort of records things, then he, he uh, puts the music on, and sometimes it's with action figures, sometimes it's with Lego... And I went, and it got me thinking about like, our conversations today because I thought, well, this is a 10-year-old who's got access to this technology now. But obviously, when you started even dreaming about storytelling and, and filmmaking and drama, you didn't have any of that, did you? No, I mean, everyone's making films, aren't they? I've got, I've got a 24-year-old son and he just sort of, uh, he did a master's degree. But before that, he was, uh, he was uh, doing a product uh, design degree and they were making films all the time you know to present their products or whatever or their ideas and um it was just second nature you know there they were on iMovie just sort of cutting mm. this stuff together and yeah doing all sorts of clever things and um yeah I mean I think uh you know young people's knowledge of the grammar and and you know is 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 amazing I mean it, it's sort of daunting really um and I you know my generation sort of cobbled it together from scraps of Super 8 film, <laughs> which, well, yeah. which is how I made my first film, you know. And you had to which wait was, to see what, you know, what came back, as it were, you know. So, so it was all very experimental, that. Which was what, Mark? What was your first film? I made a film called um, Beverly Hills' Bournemouth with Sunshine. And it was, um, it was about a man who was a professional gambler, professional poker player, right. who made his living 
in the casinos of Bournemouth. <laughs> that, those famous casinos of <laughs> yeah, Bournemouth. Yeah. The very glamorous world of Bournemouth gambling. Mate, I, mate I'm, I'm born and bred in Blackpool. I know all about the, the, the glamour yeah. of the seaside towns, yeah. Yeah, and he sort of, he made a living doing that, but it was a, it was a sort of quite an experimental film, shot on Super 8, and then all the sound was done afterwards. Uh, you know, there were interviews with him, and it was really about the relationship between him and his wife, who who they both lived in this little bungalow in Bournemouth and all the money that he made she um ploughed into gilding the taps and the light fittings and so it was a, it was this sort of and he was quite a sort of spiritual rather airy fairy person and she was very very practical and it was really about this sort of this odd partnership between the two of them well, speaking of partnerships, there's sometimes uh, it's what isn't said that's so important and and so powerful. And there's certain scenes in the documentary Bermondsey Boy between Dave and his wife, and there's a very specific scene that, that springs out on me when they're in that Chinese restaurant. And I don't know what she's saying, but I know that she's not happy, <laughs> but she can't say anything. And, you know, watching that again uh, today, I found myself at once sort of laughing. And I think there was times because I'd been with my sort of 10-year-old and I think there's certain scenes with Dave's boy who's around that age, maybe slightly younger. Um, So I found myself laughing at one point and then deeply upset (laughs) other times. I thought, oh, my God. God, it's just horrific. Just, so for those that have never seen Bermondsey Boy, I think it's important that we get a little bit of backstory on that. God knows I need some backstory on it. <laughs> because it's... I mean, it was, it was. did it come out in 91 or did you shoot in 91? Yeah, it came out in 1991, yeah. Right. We, we shot it the previous year. Um, it's a film about... Uh, it's a documentary about a man who is going through a case, uh, a court case for um, a charge of GBH. Mm. Um, and as he goes to the court every day we, uh, to, to, to face his charges, we intersperse it with his current life, which is carrying on the same uh, debt collecting um, that he was doing when he was charged with the with the with the GBH charge, um, and it follows him throughout his life, you know. But but you know, the th- I I think the thing about it at the time was, I mean, it effectively was my first film, even though I'd made something before. It was it was the first film in a professional situation where I was using proper camera people and sound and things. Um, uh, and at the time, it felt very. I think it it was very. Um, I think documentaries were a little bit more removed and um, a little bit more observed. And actually, we just immersed ourselves in Dodgy Dave's world and went mm. on these journeys with him, including the evicting of squatters and the debt collecting and things like that. And that, 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 that felt... I'm not sure how it would feel today, but at the time... Um, it felt very, you know, breaking a lot of taboos in terms of the documentary tradition, which was seen Absolutely. to be a little bit more um, 
observational and removed. Well, it was almost like, because, you know, you, I mean, you document it so well, fashion plays such a high part. There's a lot of posturing going on. I mean, I've never seen anybody wear sunglasses, but have that very slim gold chain around their neck. And it's, it's all about the mannerism of him. And there's, oh, when it's a few days, I think before he's up in court and you could plonk certain bits out of that documentary and sort of put them in the office because he was, he, he, he's, his wife's doing something in the kitchen and he's just parading around his, his house just saying not guilty, not guilty, in all different sort of mannerisms. And then he turns to his wife and he goes, just practising. And he's just go, oh, my God, one, one moment. It's so absurd and so hilarious. And then those other scenes, you know, when he's, he's with a group of his... I want to say friends, I don't know if they are, and they've got the dogs and they're baiting their dogs. And it, you, at any moment it could slip over into something very dark and very, I mean, it is dark, but very nasty. And his son's there and you, quite clearly he's a bit affected by it. So, I mean, tonally it just shifts all over the place. Um, it's interesting because it harked me back when I was watching Help a while ago to sort of quite woozy, dreamlike stuff, especially when Jodie's got that, I think it's about 22-hour shift that she's on, and it's that, I don't know if, do we call it a set piece? I don't know, but it seemed like it went on forever and I couldn't really breathe, and then thank God there was a commercial break after it. <laughs> but it, it Damn then that went, commercial break. <laughs> damn it. But then it went, you know, there's certain scenes in, in Bermondsey Boy where Dave's in the bath, and he's he's fully naked, and then all of a sudden he curls over into sort of fetal-like position, and it is dreaming. It is kind of woozy. Has there always been? How much coaxing did he need for that? Was that something that he wanted to do? Was it something you wanted to do? It's... He, he loved being filmed, and I, I, you know uh, that was another sort of taboo. I think you know the the beginning of the, the film is really very much him sort of you know making love to the camera you know mm. i mean it's very much about that but i wanted to try and use that to to show what he was really like to try and get behind what that was you know he didn't like being filmed in the bath naked because he said oh, he it, yeah, didn't no no he he, he didn't realize that we were going to show his knackers he said so he, he <laughs> and he was a little bit you know he said if he'd known he would have got a bit of a semi on but um uh, <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't like that, but but um, you know he he couldn't have been a more sort of. Um, I mean, I got really quite close to him, you know, and um, you know, I was both sort of intrigued and frightened by the whole thing, and I think um, it just naturally became this. You know, there were all sorts of elements in it which you wouldn't normally see in a in the documentary, like someone no. naked naked in the bath, you know. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that was him sort of facilitating all that, you know. And, um, you know, we stayed close for quite a long time after that. Um, uh, uh, and, um, you know, of course... Uh, you know, he, 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 you know, he's still around. He makes lots of 
documentaries and stuff, you know, um, uh, you know, for his own, you know, channel. But the the dreamlike thing, I think, just came out of that relationship, you know, that the you know the the sort of being able to push the boundaries of what one's able to do as a sort of portrait. You know, because it, it effectively it is a portrait, and it's a portrait of someone on the fringes of society in some sort of way. It's a portrait of of someone who I, I don't think the BBC audience of the time would, you know, a lot of the BBC audience of the time would have seen very much of, and it was trying to get an insight into that. And also, I think it was, you know, I was young. It was my first sort of professional film. I wanted the shock as well, um, uh, and. Um, uh, and that, and it was, you know, it was shocking. And I, you know, sometimes yeah. it was, you know, there are things that I think in retrospect were quite dangerous to film. And there were things that in retrospect I probably would have done differently. I think it's a little, you know, we, the, you know, for instance, there's a, there's a, a scene where we are with Dave as he goes to collect a debt from a, a man who owes a, a gambling debt and he's obviously not able to pay. He's quite, uh, he's old. Poor. He's old. Yeah. yeah, he's quite poor, and we're in there with him. And I think, you know, I think that felt a little bit. It's uncomfortable, you know. Um, and I, I think it's it was probably quite unfair to him in retrospect. But you know, it's it's done in the context of the whole of the of your sense of, you know, how can. How, you know, of, of your sense of being immersed, of being complicit in some sort of way with with those uh, debt collections and that and that uh, those evictions. Well, I mean, that's what I mean about the the tonal shifts of a documentary back, you know, in '91. That's why when I was rewatching and I was thinking, do, do I remember this in the way I did? And I went, oh, maybe because I'm older now. But I like to find myself laughing and then be shocked and a bit scared at some point. And then I was thinking, well, how much was anything orchestrated by him at that point? Because that the Chinese restaurant scene uh, about what isn't said, but also what we see on screen, you've got his, and I say friends again, but you, eating glass and it's, there's some dangerous stuff in there. And I just thought, how, how did you feel as a, as a, a filmmaker no. at that point? Nothing was orchestrated in the sense of it being sort of rehearsed or anything. I mean, that the Chinese restaurant scene was, uh, to put it in context, um, a local Chinese restaurant in the Old Kent Road um, mm. where they had a Chinese Elvis impersonator um, mm. uh, who was quite well known at the time. But, and he comes, you know, and they get a big table in the restaurant and, uh, uh, and, and Elvis starts singing and they just completely disrupt the... The, the the act by dancing on stage with them. I think you know, I think a fair amount of substances were taken that that day. Um and um uh uh but stuff like the eating the glass and um Dave's wife being really unhappy with it all and uh is is all you know it's documentary, you know. So yeah. uh, and and of course I'd come from a fictional background. I'd never, I, I, I didn't come from a documentary background. You know, I'd worked with Mike Lee and Terence Davis and Derek Jarman before that. And, and my whole, my, my approach was a sort of a fictional approach in the sense of wanting to tell a story and wanting not for it not to be a, a sort of handheld observational approximation of something. You know, I wanted it to look like a, like a movie, you know, and mm. so 
those that you know it is very controlled that you know the whole the style of it is very controlled you know and that was quite i think quite unusual for for that time as well yeah but i think i mean i wasn't um i was just saying about any orchestration but it's just the fact and you said yourself how much dave immediately loves the camera is obviously a natural born storyteller and obviously th- thought about what he was wearing in yeah. every in every sense and yeah and the film's about that it's about that mm. you know because it was in a series about masculinity so so it was really about the sort of peacocking of that and he's mm. a he's a natural i mean he was a sort oh. of a pretty extraordinary interesting intelligent character you know a, a bloke you know who who um was um you know, it was a, you know, as a subject, you know, it, it, I've often thought of going back to do a sort of, uh, a, a, a sort of follow up, but it's, I, I'm not sure what, what more it would be, you know, but, but he, he, he gave me so much and he was so honest, um, with, um, that, that it was a, it was a, it was a gift and, um, yeah, uh, you know, it was, um, no, it it did me a lot of did me a lot of good as a first. It'd be, um, it would be interesting to go back and see now, but whether whatever anybody would get out of it, but as a companion piece to see it side by side, that would be interesting. Yeah, but now that, let's move moving on from sort of a subject's background. Can we talk about your background and and growing up? Yeah. Um, so where are we with you growing up? Well, I was in I I I, I was brought up in North London between Golders mm. Green and Swiss Cottage. Um, my dad was a documentary filmmaker, actually, who worked for the Ministry of Information during the war, made uh, propaganda films um, and, you know, all sorts of things. You know, if you work for the Ministry of Information, you've made films on how to bone a herring as well as, you know, uh, you know, a, a, a story about a shunter uh, um, uh, uh, saving his um, railway because there was a, you know, a bomb on it. You know, it's um, uh, stuff like that. And 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 he, um, he was, my, he, it was my father's second marriage, so he was older. Um, um, and so he'd worked during the war and made a really... Actually, the most interesting film is a, is a film called Song of the People, which is an extraordinary piece, which is in the BFI archive, which is a musical about the history of working-class people in Britain. So it's a, a history of Britain told without kings and queens, but as a musical, and it starts wow. off with this huge shot of people behind in a machine shop behind their machines um singing you know in chorus you know there's probably about a hundred of them you know singing this um and uh including bill owen who who was um gunpo as a young man and um and it's that, that that's where it starts, and it tells a story of the diggers and the levellers, and you know, and 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 working people throughout Britain. So that was his, and it was made for the uh, Manchester Cooperative Society in 1945. So that that that's the the piece that is really sort of notable. Um, but he he died when I was 13, so I never really I I didn't um I didn't really. I never managed to talk about film with him. He was, he was, you know, he was away a lot. 
before that, and I really didn't ever get to know him. You know, I mean, mm. he uh, he was he was at home, but um, you know, at that age, I, I was I was too busy playing football and doing other stuff. You know, um, uh, so so you know, it, I suppose the notion of being a filmmaker might have been planted somewhere back there, but I didn't really have any. Um, help with that or anything you know so that yeah that that's my that was my background and my mum sort of soldiered on as a single parent you know bringing mm. my sister and I up um uh and um uh you know I went to a I went to a grammar school in North London um and um you know it's quite mixed culturally quite mixed you know very different for for how from how north london is now you know it was sort of a lot more um sort of emigre intellectuals and you know hampstead was a sort of place of sort of was really interesting as opposed to just being moneyed like it is now very different to what it is now (laughs) then yeah um and uh yeah that was that was my that yeah that was my upbringing really and where where did your love of of storytelling come from then as as you got older because you wouldn't have been i mean I say this to younger actors all the time who their careers officers sort of scoff at them for wanting to become an actor. Certainly if you went in there and went, I, I, I want to tell stories, I want to direct, then they would have gone, mm, okay, well, yeah. I, I'm sure that that's going to happen at some point, but maybe in your spare time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I... I- I, it wasn't. Until I, I, I was re- quite academic at school, and I'd, I was very good at maths. And I actually went on to University College London to study maths. Um, and um, as soon as I got there, I realised that I big just mistake. it was a big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I just wasn't that good, you know. <laughs> you know, if you can imagine all those great, you know, young kids who are brilliant at maths, and I was there. But the thing that happened was. Um, they had a, a fantastic um, film society there where they'd show films every week. Uh, l- later on, Christopher Nolan became the president of it, but um, but it was it was well known for its film society, you know. So I watched for the first time um, European art house films, you know, which I'd never really seen. You know, my you know my my father had died before we ever you know we, we wouldn't have seen things like that you know when we were young. Jacques Tati, I remember seeing um, uh, Monsieur Hulot's Holiday, which was mm. as totally you know was is one of my sort of desert island films. Um, uh, but apart from that, not you know I hadn't seen Bergman and Fellini and all the you know all the French, and that was a big. That was a big moment for me, sitting in the cinema and thinking I shouldn't be doing maths and, uh, you know, thinking these are amazing, these pieces of work, you know, they were totally inspiring. So that, that was a big, uh, a big sea change, a big moment for me, you know. And was it there and then? Did you make a decision? Did you think, oh, uh, there's a calling now? Because you're getting... The thing is, you were saying about, well, there was no Fellini, there was no art house because... Certainly, when I was growing up in the north, that wasn't accessible to me. We are, I, you know, there was one cinema in Blackpool, and we're lucky to have like three big screens. And there were Saturday morning films that I would go to at ten, ten thirty. But a lot of all my influences and back knowledge was all from BBC Two, from like Harold right. Lloyd and Laurel and Hardy. And that was the first time I used to sit with my granddad and watch all this old comedy and think, man, this is 
fucking on. But I mean, it's yeah. so skillful. It's like a ballet, but it's hilarious at the same time. Why aren't I seeing this more? Yeah, beautiful. All that, all those films were shown on shown on BBC Two. You know, in those mm. days, I mean, uh, including art house films as well. But also because I I went to UCL and I lived in halls, I was right in the centre of London. So the Scala was there, you know, start oh, starting wow. up, and and you know, in the days when they had um, all nighters there, but also bands, you know, throbbing gristle and punk bands and things like that, you know. So so. Uh, it was, a, it, uh, uh, you know, a razor head. I saw a razor head there for the first time, you know. So there was a lot of other stuff around the university. So, I, you know, I, I, I think, I, I, you know, I was very spoiled in terms of access to, 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 um, uh, to films. And I did, I did spend, the, you know, my three years watching films, you know. I mean, that, that, and, and decided that that's what I was going to do, that I was going to be a filmmaker. So, oh, right, so, so you, you, you carried on with the core, with the maths. Yeah, well, I, no, I actually, I, 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 I totally uh, flunked my first year and I, I, um, and, um, I, I, I did a, Joint degree in philosophy and maths. I moved. I moved courses and actually managed to get a degree with that. But at least that was something that I was quite interested in. You know, there was mm. no. You know, it's a, it's a sort of in those days. Um, UCL was like a quite a. You know, it was a Russell Group University. It's quite academic. They didn't have film courses or anything like that. They just had a film society and great theatre and all sorts of things like that. You know, of course, you know, RADA was there as well. So you're right next to RADA. So, so, um, um, but I carried on, yeah, doing my degree and sort of just, you know, limped, limped through my degree and got out the other end and then sort of decided that I was going to, you know, I was going to buy a Super 8 camera and make a, you know, make some stuff, you know. Um, so that's, that's, yeah, that's how I did it. And I, I, I sort of worked as a runner um, on films um, and on commercials and stuff like that. And then in between those films, I'd make a little bit more of my film you know of my my um my gambling film you know and so that that's the way that i did it and um and, and 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 worked it like that and eventually when i finished the film uh i sent it around to lots of people and this man called paul watson who was the man that invented the family, who who made the family in the seventies, which was the first sort of fly on the wall. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It was the first fly in the full series bits, yeah. about a, a family in Reading. You know, um, mm. observational, sort of really interesting for its time. But he was running a department in the BBC, and he was he was the last of the Mavericks. You know, he was someone that that had seen he'd seen my gambling film and said. Um, is it a documentary? I said, yeah, I hope so, you know, because it was quite odd, you know, it's quite an experimental film. And um, he said, come and make some films for the BBC. And that's how I got into making, you know, documentaries for the BBC. I mean, it's really, it was a particular thing. I don't, I, I, you know, when people ask me now, how did you get into film? I, you know, I know that there's no that there aren't those avenues anymore. You know, there are none of those mavericks in places like the BBC or whatever where you could actually just go and they'd give you. He said, "Come and make a few films and make some mistakes." You know, and wow, uh, and, being given a chance to make mistakes. Yeah, that was part Fuck of me. It, that's you know. incredible. Yeah, and it was really, um, it was just sort of, yeah, it was a 
sort of glorious time. It was um, I joined and um, Penny Woolcock, who's uh, another uh, well, she's a really interesting political filmmaker. Mm. Um, uh, it was her and I, and we made this series called "From Wimps to Warriors," which was uh, Bermondsey Boy was the first one of those uh, of that you know was one of those uh, films in that sh- series. So. And when did you? How did you meet Terence Davis? Uh, well, that, that was that just come about? that was that was before that was um, you know I I was making my living as a runner you know so I'd I'd worked with um, I'd worked on little I'd worked on commercials and little films and someone said you know the BFI are making this film um, and I'd never heard of Terry before. I mean, I I tried to get into the film school. I couldn't get into the film school, National Film School, this mm. is, which is where he he had been. Um, and because uh, that was the thing that I did when I left university, I thought, oh, you know, if I can make some money as a runner, then maybe I could get into film school and learn how to make films. Um, but... Um, yeah, I, 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 you know, someone at the BFI said, you know, you know, if you're a runner, you know, you, and you've got, I was, by that time, I was quite experienced. So they said, come and be a, you know, a second assistant director on, on this film. And it was really, really low budget, you know. But of course, it's, it, it was Distant Voices Still Lives. And it's a, you know, it's a Absolute classic, classic. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was, it was, um, yeah, it was a magical time. I mean, it was an interesting, script because of course Terence Davis has you know it's not it's not going to be on paper it's all in his head it's all it this vision so the 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 script almost read like a student film there was absolutely no way that you could tell what sort of a film it was going to be it could have been awful or it could have been great you know um but as he started to sort of as you know as I watched the scenes unfold you I just realized it was just absolutely unique in the way that he you know he's constructed stuff so that was um you know that was uh uh that that was a great experience and my first experience in liverpool funnily enough you know which you know which brings us which brings us up to date really because i do want to jump forward i mean we'll just jump around all over the place with these conversations um and i was thinking about walking out of a cinema Years ago, this is, and um, I think I'd just broken up with a, an old girlfriend. I was in my twenties. I was living in London, and I went to the Odeon on Panton Street, and I, I was sort of uh, getting into Michael Winterbottom's films at the time, and John Sim, uh, who's like a friend of mine. I know you know him. Yeah, um, we were. He was years above me at Blackpool Fire College, and Blackpool Fire College is no longer there in its in its uh, structural form where it was it's turned into flats now sadly but it's where you know john went and david thulis went and like being an actor from the northwest you go well if they're doing it then i'm gonna really try my best so i knew john was in it i thought i'm gonna go and see this and i sat down and i watched the first 25 minutes and i went no no this is rubbish i'm going and i walked out the cinema and it took me like a good year or so to go i know that's it's not the the film it was me. I, I wasn't in the right headspace at the time to sit down and watch this quite sort of handheld filmic. I haven't seen lots like it before. Again, it was slightly woozy, or maybe it was me. Maybe I was just upset at the time. <laughs> and then I was thinking, 
when I was watching help, people might not be ready to watch this right now because they might not be in a certain place within themselves. So going into that with your preparation, knowing that you're going to shoot it, were you thinking forward about that? Or were you thinking, or maybe it's going to be in the archive now and people can just pick it up when they're ready? Um, It's a good question. I mean, I definitely, one of the things that I just didn't want to do was to trigger people. I mean, that was a big thing that we talked about a lot, you know, the idea Mm. of triggering people that might have been through it. Um, I think, you know, the main thing for me was to try and make it as honest as possible, which is why uh, there's very little, that central section that you're talking about, which is, you know, where um, Sarah, Jodie Comer's character, is trying to rescue um, this man who's suffocating. Um, uh, That, you know... I just wanted us to be with her and observe her, you know, um, and um, observe the real horror of it. Um, And I think also that there's something about, rather than it being too soon, um, which it may well be too soon, um, you know, depending on your state. And I know actually interesting, it was interesting watching it the other day go out because I had the tw- uh, was, I had it in parallel with Twitter. So I was watching the Twitter feed go through. People were very, you know, were getting quite upset. And I, I uh, but sort of almost everyone felt like it was, um, uh, like it had been, you know, there was no, artificiality about it and that 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 pleased me and also we're still going through it i mean you know i mean you know there's a you know there's a lot of people for whom freedom day is not freedom day at all it's going you know people that have health um issues and uh you know and the disabled i mean they're you know that 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 they are still right in the middle of it despite freedom day and um uh you know i i i I, you know i wanted it to sort of you know uh uh, spark a debate as well to make people angry you know that this is still going on you know um which i think it has by the way and i think that's really important because I've listened to certain radio plays over the past 18 months and watched uh, some dramas, I mean, I'm talking about maybe one or two, that have been the backdrop of the pandemic. And they've mainly focused on um, the crumbling structure of relationships. And it's like, well, look, we all know about the divorces and the you know, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. But this is what's happening and, and, you know, it has happened. And it would not have been sugar-coated at all. Or the one thing I don't think you do as a filmmaker, nor you have done with anything, and I'm, I remember when I first saw The Mark of Cain, you don't sugarcoat your storytelling. You don't, you don't um, spoon-feed the audience. And I think it's so important with whatever story you're telling, but certainly w- with this... Yeah, well, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, a lot. 
I think that's right. I mean, I I I I, I like to challenge. You know, I think audiences like to be challenged. I mean, there's Absolutely. just so much stuff on TV. You know, that is not doing that, and I think people people want to be challenged and they want to make their own decisions about stuff. You know, but I think. Um, uh, I think you know. Obviously, a lot of that came from Jack Thorne as well, who was who, you know who who wrote this fantastic script, um, and then it was taken on a stage further by Stephen and Stephen Graham and Jodie Comer coming together and bringing their own their own their own friendship, their own love mm. for each other's work, their own love for each other, you know, into that those two characters, you know, and. And 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 sort of elevating that to another level, you know. So it's really, really cooking. And that there was a a sort of honesty that came through that as well. Um, and also, I think I sort of feel that I want. I, I, it's not just the the subject. I, I'm sort of interested in challenging people's. Um, I said this. If, before but i think tv's really good about um tackling difficult subjects and it, it does that a lot um but i'm not sure it's so good at um tackling those subjects in a way which might be challenging for the audience or might, might you know it, it it might be um for, formally difficult as well so the notion of sort of being with someone for uh, 26 28 minutes while they're trying to revive a a man who's who's not breathing and it's quite monotonous he, she goes to the phone she comes back from the phone she goes back to the phone you know um i i i i i liked the idea of um the audience not being able to turn away in some sort of way you know they're not being they're, they're compelled by this they're immersed in that horror with Sarah they're 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 experiencing this sort of the dread that she experienced you know mm. and just as you might in a horror film except this is real um so uh, you know I, I I sort of um I, I you know I liked the challenge to the audience of that and that uh, and and actually what's interesting is people rose to that challenge you know no one turned off you know no, no. one said oh you know this is boring she's just walking back and forth you know um and that's because it felt very real you know that's what exactly what carers were going through when they weren't being able to get GPs on the phone or um, you know, one one one, or the emergency services weren't sending ambulances out, um, and um, you know, I think people were 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 compelled by that truth, I suppose. And also, I mean, I disagree. I didn't find it monotonous at all. I found, I remember the first time I watched it, I thought I'm going to go, go and have a bath and go to my bed because I had an early day, but I'm going to watch this tonight. And I, it was one of those things. I almost didn't want to watch, but I was so compelled because the stakes just kept rising and rising and rising until she gets Stevie's character out to help. And even then we raise it again, but it was horrifying and it was horrifying, but I couldn't turn off and I couldn't look away. And I think it's such, and I'm sure you've been told this many times, it's such an important integral part of that whole story. And I know, yeah, of course you've got a brilliant script to work from, but 
it all it all just came together for me. I thought it was really good. I'm not going to carry on giving lots of praise, but do you know what I mean? Well, so the other thing that I learned though was that I, you know last um, year we um, uh, uh, I did this um, series for HBO and Sky Atlantic called The Third Day, and in the middle of it was a a, a performance by Punch Drunk Theatre, who were involved with the, the you know the whole genesis of the mm. series, and that was a twelve hour film where we we actually you know sort of you know, we walked through that island with this with this passion play that Jude Law was in for twelve hours, and yeah. and 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 uh, you know, including watching him dig his own grave for an hour, and uh, and 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 and, yeah. uh, um, and also, but also you know, travelling across the causeway to the island where the, the the ceremony was in real time, which took you know, sort of forty eight minutes or something, you know, with nothing but the odd bird flying past. But what what People were really, really drawn to that, and I'm, you know, people. I, I, I doubt if anyone watched, sat down and watched the whole twelve hours, but people actually, you know, absolutely had it on, and that was another one where the Twitter feed and the Facebook feed was going crazy on that yeah. sort of stuff, you know. But I thought that I thought that what that was really, really interesting because I thought people were very. What you, you watch that sort of moving image in a very very different way you know you digest it in a very very different way it's mesmerizing it's a sort of almost like a meditation when there's very very little thing um, you know and I thought maybe I can bring some of that to this this sequence you know we I've done it before you know maybe we can sort of combine the two things I think the audience has a you know, has an appetite for that sort of challenge. You know? Absolutely. I mean, it's so funny because you mentioned the third day because that's the other thing I was going to come onto because I'm still connecting all these dreamlike sort of states and this wooziness that keeps cropping up in your work all the time. Never more so than in the third day. I mean, yeah, I mean, talk about pushing the boundaries. <laughs> I'm going to do a 12-hour <laughs> live. <laughs> I mean, I know we do want to push bounds and challenge the audience, but how did you feel? How did you feel when that was approached to you? By well, I mean, I take it it was by Punch Drunk. Yeah, yeah, Felix yeah. Barrett. So Felix Barrett and Dennis Kelly, who who, who was the writer of the series, um, initiate the project together. You know, and part of it was um, after the third episode was a, going to be a Punch Drunk show. So it was something that. You got to the third episode on the TV, you watched it on the Sunday, and then the following Saturday you applied in a raffle to get a ticket to go to this show, one of 2,000 people, to go to the island and actually be in the television show, you know. Um, and obviously you'd seen it up to that point, so it's it was obviously going to be a bit of a you know, a, a challenge or, a, you know, you've got to, you know, it's, it, it, you know, punch drunk and known for doing these immersive shows where they totally take you out of your comfort mm. zone. So you mm -hmm. know that you're going to enter something like that. Um, and, and, uh, what was going to happen in, in this show was going to be a, 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 you know, the result of what happened in the first three hours, you know, which was this sort of passion play, which Jude Law's character was being taken through this initiation of some kind. Um, but of course lockdown came and, um, there was no way that anyone could get onto, you know, you could have 2000 people on an island and, and that was last September, um, 
So we decided that we were going to do it as a single camera film, you know, and still keep the 12 hours because it, you know, there's only certain times that you can get get on and off the island (laughs) and it's 12 hours between those times. So there's got to be 12 hours, you know, um, and, uh, you know, and then so we thought, you know, I, I suggest let's do it. Let, let's do it with just a single camera. We're just like the, you know, we'll just be, um, we'll just be like a member of the audience, you know, walking through this this piece. Um, and that was the easy bit, deciding to do it. <laughs> <laughs> After that, it was just like, God, how the bloody hell do we get this done? You know, but um, yeah, uh, uh, you know, it was. It was crazy, but there's been, you know, we had the outside broadcast teams and things like that because it was all filmed, it was all broadcast live. So all that technical thing was was all sort of sorted out. It was just yeah. more about the sort of logistics of getting a camera around this, you know, mile and a half of island and, um, you know, you know, with all these extraordinary things happening, you know. All, so will you all, have it... We- Sorry, Mike, were you having to rehearse then? Did you do a lot of rehearsal for this? We didn't do a lot of rehearsal. We only had um, Jude Law sort of three days before um, the actual uh, broadcast of it. So Jude came in completely, completely sort of fresh. I mean, you know, part of it was that if anyone's seen the series... The Jeez, character he, wasn't, really... he wasn't fresh by the end of it. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, he, he's just extraordinary. I, I mean, I'm, oh, I'm in awe of him. But, but mm. you know, he, you know he, he dragged that boat around for eight hours. I mean, he's, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's, his commitment as well as his uh, acting ability is amazing. But, um, but um, uh, yeah, no, the, the idea was to sort of try and, uh, to, to, you know, he was... He was his character wasn't aware of exactly what was going on, so it hap- it, it worked that actually you know he was being taken around by the the, the 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 men of the island in this initiation ceremony, you know. So that that sort of worked, but yeah, there was a fair amount of uh, there was a fair amount of uh, initiating scenarios and um, and rehearsals that went on in advance of that without you know, in the, in the few weeks before that. I mean, it's probably for the best that you didn't know too much about what was going to happen, really, <laughs> let's be honest. <laughs> I did not feel sorry for him at some point. My <laughs> God! I know, he's, he's, uh, he's a superhuman. It absolutely and, is, absolute uh, machine. The loveliest bloke you're likely to meet, you know, and mm. totally serious about the work. I mean, brilliant, you know. Um, I, 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 it It would have been... I think he sort of went through this sort of out of body experience with it because he sort of he it was go, you know he was in character for you know whatever that was eight hours being thrown into a you know thrown into a grave digging his own grave dragging this boat round you know being crucified on this on this pylon out to sea all all that sort of thing I mean it was a real uh, ordeal you know. Mm. But there's the the great thing is that it, this harks back to starting out talking about Bermondsey Boy and, and Dave as your sort of quote unquote leading man. There seems to be there has to be trust there between whether it's a subject or your actor and the director. And once there is complicity and there's trust, like a, a, an actor will just sort of fall 
you know, and as long as they know that they're there to be caught, it's like, you know, I don't know what I'm eating at this restaurant, but I really, I love this chef. So I'll eat anything he gives me and I know it's going to be great, even though maybe it's not to my taste, but the trust is there. And how important is it for you to begin the process before you get the actors on board with a trust between a casting director and also possibly a new writer? I know that's kind of two questions there, but we can split them up. Yeah, uh, it is. Uh, I mean, the the writer thing is 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 a sort of different relationship. I mean, I you know I have really good relationships with sort of quite a few writers that I've worked mm. with over the years, and it's really about making sure that you communicate, especially in television where the writer is king. You know, um, you're absolutely communicating clearly whatever you're doing, so people are knowing all the time what. You know, if you are going to do, say, a thirty-minute shot in one, you know, in one one take, as it were, you know, some that that actually everyone's knows that, so they don't think, oh, because the scene, the you know, Jack's scenes weren't written; they were all written as individual scenes for help. So they, you know, it wasn't written like that. But um, I, th- I think it's just about communicating that and then asking questions and excavating everything that you can get out of a writer. With actors, for me. It's, um, I mean, I'm, I'm in awe of acting. I mean, I'm in awe of what you do. I mean, I, I can't even stand to hear my bloody voice ask a question on a documentary, let alone put myself in front of the camera. I think it's just, uh, it's incredibly, it's just incredibly brave and exposing. And um, so, and I, I can understand um, why people get nervous, people don't, don't have mistrust for what's going on around. I'm talking about actors, why actors get nervous, why actors have mistrust for what's going around them. Um, and my process with actors is really sort of, it's sort of, you know, I, I got a lot from working with Mike Lee, you know, who who has this process of, of um, rehearsal that lasts, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks where they originate the, you know, the film through this rehearsal process. Mm. And it's really people sort of um, inhabiting the characters that they've created, you know. Um, it, it's, it's difficult to... From, I, I don't have that time, you know. I don't have that time to, you know, to do that sort of process. But I think the main... I, I always rehearse... I always rehearse in a rehearsal room. Everything that I do, I've always done that right from the very, very beginning. So there's a, there's a formal rehearsal process in a rehearsal room where um, people can make mistakes, they can experiment, they can make fools of themselves and they can fail. Um, and that's, the pl- that's the place to fail. Yeah, exactly. And um, And it's all about supporting the actor to finds that character and embody that character in a way that doesn't it that exposes them you know um less as it were you know um and um that is a that's a really really big thing for me for 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 and and it's a sort of it's something that I've always um insisted on and and sort of fought for because a lot of tv doesn't really um 
either hasn't got the money to do it or that, you know, people don't really believe in it. They think it's sort of a little bit wanky that you're going off to a rehearsal room and rehearsing and, you know, maybe you're not even, maybe you're not even rehearsing the script. A lot of the time, you know, we're not rehearsing the script. We might be talking, we might be sort of experimenting with what is that character? How does that character walk? How does that character think? You know, all those, all those things, you know, which, which are, are there to, um, you know, give the actor as much of an armory as possible when they're on the set. And then when, you know, when you, when we're on the set, then um, they're totally in character and know exactly what they're doing. So, so that trust thing is, uh, is a big, you know, I work as hard as possible for people to get, um, you know, for me to get the actor's trust, you know, it's a big thing. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it's difficult. I think um, it can be, you know, I do lots of, you know, I mean, as a director, I'm still sort of, I'm still so learning <laughs> about stuff, about making films, about working with actors, you know, even though I've been at it for a long while. And I, you know, I might say stupid things or I might do stupid things. It's all, you know, and... And um, it's, but, but it's, you know, so sometimes it's difficult, you know, sometimes we, you know, it's not as, it's, it all sounds very ideal that we have this sort of, you know, but sometimes it's, it, it doesn't, it, you know, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't work out. But I think my ideal is to sort of have a, a you know, a supported cast, you know, that, 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 then can go in front of a camera and it's not the first time that they're doing that. Mm. Um, and uh, they're, they're absolutely by that time burning to get on film, burning to serve, to, to, to play that, to play that character. And also that, you know, even if it's not rehearsal time from the scripts, it's about talking, it's about building once you're on the floor in front of the camera, it gives you room to play in any different way. And also, it, there's, not in, there's not so much time solving problems because we all know that once you get on the floor, all we're doing is like trying to solve this problem that we didn't suspect this was going to happen. And maybe we've sorted that out yeah. 10 days ago and yeah. that's not going to eat into anybody's time. No, that's right. I mean, that's definitely anything to do with script or story or anything like that. I don't, I don't want to be sorting that out on set, you know, when you've got everyone looking at their watch standing around you, mm. you, know, you know. And it is all about time, you know. It is tick-tock, tick-tock. And yeah. it's, let's not do that. And do you, do you run into problems or do you favour a certain channel over others because you do have a, a, a great relationship obviously with channel four do you feel um because i know that i've worked with uh writers and showrunners who go well i love working with netflix because they leave me alone and i can just do what i need to do do you do you find that without saying you don't have, we're not don't have to sort of say well i don't like that channel i'm not it's not that sort of base but 
it's about give, being given the freedom to do what you need to do. do would you favour another channel over some, some others? Well, the thing is that I think that, you know, the channels are really defined by the commissioning editors and the commissioning editors, you know, like in drama anyway, the commissioning mm. editors are changing all the time. You know, I mean, when we made Utopia, um, the commissioning editor was Piers Wenger, who's now the commissioning editor at the head head of the BBC. So, so, so you know, people's people move on and in the time that I've been uh, working with Channel 4 there's probably been about four or five changes of of people you know that have gone through you know so each of them creates their own stamp in a way but what I would say is I I, I think because of the sort of work that I like to do I'm more I'm probably more at home with those less slightly less commercial channels like Channel 4 um uh, than say ITV. I haven't worked for ITV for a long time. I mean, I, you know, they haven't asked me, but <laughs> for some reason I can't think why. <laughs> Maybe they saw the third day. Um, but uh, but uh, but um, I think um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm I'm less at home in that. And obviously, it's it's important to have sort of you know like really good relation. And what I was saying about uh, you know communicating to to writers, it's the same thing with people at the channel. You know, you really want to be communicating with people so they're not going to get a nasty surprise about what you're suddenly producing. But I think full stop, even from, you know, from your point of view or from an actor's point of view, it all boils down to communication. Everything runs off communication from the first saying what's going on. Everything, even on the floor, is about communication. So it makes sense that everything happens prior to the cameras rolling, that communication is key. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just talking about your just sort of overall work, there is certain tones and themes that do come up again and again. Are these projects that you seek out or are projects sort of, you know, fed to you or just land in your inbox or is, is there a, a, a sort of tidy balance with that? Um, well, I, I, I do get sent a lot of, I do get sent a lot of stuff, and um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely more at home with those elements which are sort of um, that are to do with conflict and. Um, that's not to that's not to say that they can't you know there's not love there or that you know that 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 I couldn't do a, a, a you know romantic a, you know a, a love story but I, I am much more at home with the countercultural the uh, you know the 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 conflicted the mm. the sort of you know the 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 um uh you know, people that are things that happen on the fringes of society. People that might be sort of uh, 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 um, sort of on the fringes of society as well. So I've not really thought about this before, but I, I, I think you know the 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 best my best work is probably comes out of that rather than something which is you know um, uh, you know uh, I suppose a little bit more just more entertainment, feel-good entertainment. I'm not sure I, I do that particularly well. 
Well, I say bring on the Mark Munder romantic comedy. That's what I say. <laughs> Mark Munder, what an absolute pleasure you've been to talk to. Thank you so, so much for taking your time on, uh, on a, a Sunday evening to talk to me. Yeah. I've loved it. Thanks, man. And congratulations uh, on, on help. Just absolutely class. Thank you, man. Cheers. Thank you very much. Another episode is done. Good news, the church bells have stopped after about 27 minutes of trying to record this outro. Bad news, the delicate cycle is still on, but I don't have any more time. Um, I hope you had good news listening to that uh, conversation with me and Mark. Um, He's great. He's so great. I was really thrilled to get him on because, yeah, you know, I'm a big admirer of his work. Uh, But more importantly, he doesn't do a lot of these. So when he, you know, accepted the invitation to come on this and kind of knew what it was about, uh, yeah, I was made up. And uh, I spoke to a friend of mine who worked with him uh, after I recorded last night. I went out um to get some fish um you don't need to know this and uh yeah i said i was really buzzing that i had such a uh, a good conversation with mark so if you are new to mark's work or you need to catch up yet try and find bermondsey boy on youtube one of his uh, first documentaries uh utopia is on channel four national treasures on channel four the third day i don't know whether it's there, it might be on Sky, uh, catch up. So, I mean, I don't think the the twelve hour live stream that we speak about is there. Um, but yeah, certainly, if you're in the headspace, do try and watch Help with uh, the wonderful Stephen Graham and past Two Shot Podcast guest. The remarkable Jodie Comey, and she is she she is Jodie is remarkable in this film, I think. Um, and then let me know what you thought of it. Uh, and if you haven't listened to Jodie's episode of this podcast, go back, go back. We before the world embraced Jodie Comer, we were there and got on. I'm not sure if she's done loads of podcasts, but yeah, she certainly came on ours and we had a terrific chat and I'm sure she'll come back at some point. Right, uh, I'm going to go because um, I'm going to poach said fish again. You don't need to know that. Uh, until next week, I've been Craig Parkinson. You have been fantastic for downloading subscribing telling your friends sending us emails you know where we are we're on all the socials at two shot pod if you want to send us an email it's two shot pod at gmail.com you know we're on patreon if you can if you feel you can throw us some money every month or just for one month do as a one-off that's absolutely fine you know these podcasts are free um and we really hope you enjoy them. And it's been going for a fair few years now, hasn't it? So, as I said, until next week, 
I've been Craig Parkinson, he's been producer Griff, and this has been the Two Shot Podcast. I'll see you next week. Take care and stay safe. The Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers. <laughs>